you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we've been reading together from the book of Amos in the Old Testament, the prophet who comes and really wants to remind the people of God that justice really matters to God, that God ultimately is a God of justice. And to a people who had found it easier to grow complacent and be like all the other nations, Amos wanted them to hear God getting their attention. And we looked at uh, the anger of God against warfare, against people trafficking, against just the sheer injustice of the world eight centuries before Jesus, which sounded as though it was from the news this week. Last week, we looked at the way God tries to get our attention and the lens to which this God who loves his people so much will go to get their attention so that they might turn back. And this morning, I want to look at the worship that God hates. Hannah rang me up in the week, or last week, and said, Neil, what's your theme? And I said, God hates worship, that's the theme. Um, good luck getting choruses on that. Um, there's worship that God hates. There are wor- there's worship that God hates. I'm going to read together if you have a Bible or you can uh, look over someone's shoulder. I'm going to pick it up at chapter 5 and verse 4. And we'll read through together first. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile. And Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he'll sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It'll devour them. And Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness, and they cast righteousness to the ground. But he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the Lord, the Lord is his name. And he flashes destruction on the stronghold, and he brings a fortified city to ruin. But there are those who hate the one who reproves in court. And they detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor. and You impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you've built stone mansions, you'll not live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you'll not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes. And they deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times. The times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you might live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you, just as he said. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. They'll be wailing in the vineyards for I'll pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It'll be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. 
as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, house of Israel? You've lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God you made for yourselves. Therefore, I'll send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calne and look at it. Go from there to great Hamath and then go down to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day. You bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and you use the finest lotions. You don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you'll be among the first to go into exile. Feasting and lounging men. I did think there was a verse there that we ought to put on a preach magnet for Ian. 6 verse 5. You strum away on your harps like David. You improvise on musical instruments. It's harsh, isn't it? It's dramatic. Amos began the book. Can you just push me on? Amos began the book with a phrase The Lord roars. The Lord roars. Why? Slide's gone a bit haywire, but never mind. Why did the Lord roar? Because they're no different than everybody else, and because they refuse to listen. When you come to a book like Amos, you've got to work out how do you read this and how do we hear it? And I think there's three things that you bear in mind. Number one, this was a set of oracles, a set of speeches that was given to one people at one particular time. So here's the people of Israel and they're feeling very complacent. And uh, the political situation was very good. Their uh, boundaries were extending. They were getting richer. Everything was prosperous. And at that time, Amos came as part of a whole gang of prophets, really, who said, listen, folks, your complacency is your problem. Because you have decided that because you're getting richer and you're safe and you're complacent and you're well provided for, that God's blessed you. But actually what you're missing is that God is longing for you to come back to him. And so at one particular time, the prophets came and spoke to one group of people and said, I want you to come home. 
I want you to come back to me. And when we read, the first way you've got to read it is through that lens. It happened there, and it happened then, and it happened to them. And then you begin to ask other questions. Well, they did go into exile. So why did they keep books like this? Why did they carry these scrolls around for thousands of years when they kept moving from land to land? When they were being taken into exile at the last minute, why was one of the things that they wanted to grab the scrolls so they could take them with them? And if you've been sent into exile, because now you realize maybe God has, maybe we did let God down. Why would you keep this sort of literature? Wouldn't you want to just bury it? Wouldn't you want to go, it was just political. God had nothing to do with it. Well, we can't be exactly sure, but what seems to have happened is they wanted to keep it because they recognized this is saying something about the God we worship and who his people are. This is the sort of ways that God deals with his people. And that's why it's been kept. And that's why we still read it 20 centuries on, 28 centuries on. We read it because actually we're hearing something about what's this God that we've been singing about this morning like? So you hear it because it was happened then, and then you're reminded actually it's been passed down to us, and we've got to make sense of it. We're not in exactly the same position, but you've got to make sense of it. And then the third question, when I'm coming to this sort of stuff, is I'm always asking that question. What did Jesus think? What did he say? Well, let's look at it a little bit closer, and then we'll, we'll do that process. The first thing that really uh, we read together in verse 4, and it's a sort of a refrain that goes through that fifth chapter, is, Seek me and live. And then Amos says, Don't seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't. Don't journey to Beersheba. Uh, some of you have been to Spring Harvest, yes? In years gone by. Some of you have been a sole survivor. Some of you have been a Keswick. I'm trying to be very ecumenical here. <laughs> some may even have been to Walsingham. I have no idea. But you're sort of like, you've been to these religious festivals. And for many of us, for many of us, there have been times when God has really spoken to us. Remember a time at Spring Harvest. Uh, this is many years ago when uh, a little group of us went. But I remember at Spring Harvest, God speaking to me really, really, really powerfully in the middle of one of the meetings. Uh, so much so that I began to cry and then everybody was very concerned about me, which was a bit of a nuisance. Um, but I was fine. But it was just like that moment where God breaks in. And, and there, are, there are times in our sort of pilgrimage where you've been to these events and they've been great. Well, that's what Beersheba and Gilgal, that's what Bethel was for these people. There were the shrines where God had worked in the past and you went back there to experience something of God. Nemos says, cancel your trip. Seek God instead. You think that if you go there, you'll find him. You don't need to journey there. You can find him here, now, at this moment. Seek me and live. Seek me. And you know what's coming because we've read it. 
He's going to say, you can't go to these worship sites. You can't go for these spiritual experiences and think it's okay to live the rest of your life the way everybody else does. And he names it. He says, verse 7, it's like God saying, this is the problem. There are those who turn justice into bitterness, and they cast righteousness to the ground. Can you push me on? Um, there are those who hate the one who, who upholds justice in court, they det- and they detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor. This is kind of like a reference to the fact that on the poorest of the poorest of the poorest people, you find a way of extracting money out of the poorest people. What's the poorest people only got? Straw. We'll tax it. Next one. There are those who oppress the innocent. and They take bribes and they deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And then finally, therefore the prudent keep quiet in such times for the times are evil. And the last one is this. There are some people who go, best not to say anything. You know it's bad out there, but keep your head down. We'll just get on with our lives, not say anything, and we'll say we're just being sensible. And what Amos is doing, he's speaking for God, and he's racking up these uh, accusations against the people. Now, the slight difference is this. When Amos is speaking, he's speaking to a nation which is the people of God. And so he's looking out at the nation and saying, you're my chosen people as a whole. You're supposed to demonstrate what this looks like to the rest of the world. And you failed. That's why it was such a big problem. Now, when we read it, we don't live in a Christian nation. We don't live in a nation that is designed by God to demonstrate to the rest of the world how life should be. We used to think we did, and it was called the British colonial system. But we don't. That's, that was always a false reading. So when we hear this, who's God speaking to? Well, there's two things. Directly, he's speaking to his own people. Directly, he's speaking to us. Directly, he's speaking to the church. Directly, he's saying, if you attempted to ignore the poor among you, if you attempted to not have justice for people amongst you, if you're not willing to stand up for the weak amongst you, you failed. Now, by extension, that's the God we serve. Mary mentioned Panorama. Um, I don't know if you did watch the TV program. It was made by the Salford Tourist Board, I believe. Um, <laughs> It raises two issues. How do we, who've got a vision of something better, say we're going to live remarkably different? Because you watched Panorama, it was like everything that had bad ha- that had happened in Salford all squeezed into 30 minutes. And of course, it had happened over quite an extended period of time. But when it was all squeezed into 30 minutes, it looked like, oh, my life. When it's all squeezed into that moment, you would be unusual if you didn't think, 
Let's move. Let's move. Let's go to a rose-covered cottage somewhere in a valley that's away from all of this. In fact, why don't we just switch over onto Channel 4, relocation, relocation, relocation. <laughs> I don't want to live here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be around here because it's not a good place. Go to Cardiff. And God says to people that are his people who've bowed the knee before him, don't run. Don't run. Put down your roots. You're not in a place that's always easy. You're not in a place that's always great. But put down your roots here. Because you can demonstrate a different way of being. Where there are no relationships, you can create relationships. Where there is no safety, you can create places of safety. You can demonstrate together what it means to be a different sort of people. Because the danger is if you don't, you'll become like everybody else. And if we become like everything else, everyone else, then this is what he says. I hate I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. A way, some of you can't read that except through school eyes, can you? Thinking, yeah, I've been in assemblies like that. <laughs> Away with the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a righteous, a righteousness, uh, sorry, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. What had happened was their worship had become escapist. It had become disconnected from life. It was uh, something that they entertained them but didn't shape them. And it was about them, not about God. And God says, you can't act like that and then sing like this. You can't think like that and then come and just sing like this. Because what you're seeing here has to have a direct connection to what life is there. And life there has to have a direct connection with what's going on here. You can't flip-flop. To use a phrase that you've heard me use before, you can't live a sacred, secular, divided life. You can't say, well, this is what we do in church, and then the rest of my life, well, I'm back in the real world, so I'll play by the real rules. Your world this time tomorrow has to be directly connected with the things you're singing and praying, the communion you take, the preaching you hear. You can't, to put it really bluntly, we can't sing about loving God and wanting him to love us and wanting to know him and, him wanting, and wanting him to fill us. We can't sing that stuff and then go out and have all those feelings towards the people that are around us where we wish they weren't there, or we begrudge them, or we're hard against them, or we refuse to forgive them. Something has to give. And Amos says the thing that will give is God will stop listening to us. And then you want to say, 
Where does that leave us? Well, let's move me on, Gemma. Is this just Amos's problem? Can you move me on? Thank you. Well, no. Jesus, in Matthew 23, if you want to just turn there for a moment, Jesus said, this seems to be a problem that religious people have. And I don't want us to sort of go out feeling like we've been beaten up, but there's some sermons that you've got to say, these sermons are really, these passages are really written for religious people, not for non-religious people. There are passages that are written for Christians to hear, not for non-Christians to hear. And in chapter 23, that whole chapter is Jesus engaging with the scribes and Pharisees of the day. People who, they weren't bad people. They wanted to know God. They wanted to follow God. They wanted to love God. And Jesus says, but you've missed so much. Listen to him in verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You strain out a gnat, and you swallow. And it is supposed to be... It's kind of like a humorous picture. It's like when you're getting your cup of tea and you just see that little, little fruit fly that's flying, sort of floating around on the top and you're desperately trying to strain it and you can't quite get it with your finger. Some of you try and strain it through your teeth, but you know that's not going to end particularly well. And it's just sort of like, how can I get that fly out? It's such a, a nuisance. And Jesus says, you try so hard with the small things, but you miss the camel. You miss the camel. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said something very similar, didn't he? In 1 Corinthians 13. He's writing to a church that loved their worship times. They really did. They were out and out charismatic worshippers. And he said, but I want to tell you, if I speak in human or angelic tongues, but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but don't have love, I gain nothing. And then just in case you're wondering, what does love look like? Well, love's patient, love's kind. Love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Problem with the passage is that sometimes that passage has been predominantly used at weddings. I don't actually think Paul ever imagined, I tell you what I'll do now, I'll write a chapter, it'll be really good for a wedding. 
This was written for your relationships, not that are the closest to you. This was written for your relationships with the people around you. Now, clearly, it extends to home, but it's more than home. But it's that really hard thing. You can speak in tongues or you can be really eloquent in English. If you don't love the people around you, you're just a noise. You can, you can be incredibly insightful in prophecy. You can know stuff that nobody else would know how you knew. And your faith can make things happen. And this is a scary bit. It's not that you weren't very good at prophecy and it wasn't that you didn't have very much faith. And it's not that when you prayed, nothing happened. The frightening thing is, when you did all that, it did happen. You were a success. But if we don't have love, we're nothing. And you can be really generous. You can be really generous and you can have a heart for the poor. And you can be really giving and involved and doing all that. But if you don't have love, it's for nothing. Jesus said to those people in chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I longed for you to come to me. And if you'd have come to me, I would have stretched out my, my arm over you and I would have drawn you to myself. But you found a way of doing religion without me. So how do we hear this? Two more slides. In one sense, it's remarkably simple. Two things matter. People matter and honesty matters. In every area of our lives, people matter and honesty matters. And both are tested from time to time, aren't they? Your relationship with the people around you are tested. Sometimes when I'm, when I'm at work in London, you know, Oxford Street, it's like, I, I, I don't know what hell will be like. But I think I've been to the next best thing. And it's like, I find it really hard because all the, all the horrible bits of me come out. You know when you see people texting on, on the street, not looking where they're going? I want to bump into them. When I can't get past people because they're walking too fast, I go for the gap. And sometimes I know I nudge them. Nudge is a euphemism for something else. <laughs> I get frustrated with people. It's kind of like that old Peanuts cartoon. I love, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> and those are people I don't know. What about the people you do know? The people you work with? The people that are at home with you? This doesn't matter if that's not right. In fact, it's not that this doesn't matter if that's not right. It's that this is worse than it doesn't matter. And honesty matters. And we're tempted by honesty when we fear when we feel we're not going to have enough. 
And sometimes that becomes a temptation for us. People matter and honesty matters. So what are we going to do? How do we make sense of this? Final slide. When we worship, number one. The big question is, who's around you? You see, in our tradition, the sort of the, our charismatic tradition, the sort of like the high point of worship is when we've all got our eyes closed and we've all got our hands in the air. All right? And at that point, the last thing anybody wants is someone to interrupt them. It's kind of interesting, and this is, this is true, and you know this is true, that if you come in the first song, nobody matters if you go, oh, sorry, I'm late, it's good to see you, how are you doing? That's fine. But actually, if we get to that moment in a minute or two, and we get there, and we've got our arms in the air, and then Shirley says, oh, Pat, I've just thought of something, you're going to say, uh, uh, what's your name? You're Shirley, you're Pat. You're going <laughs> to say, Shirley, shush. Because the high point is when you've got your eyes closed, and you're on your own, and it's just you and God. I'm not sure that that's actually the high point of worship. I think it's one part of worship, but actually I think the whole point of Paul talking about how do you worship together is this. Who's around you and how does your expression of worship help? This is why, by the way, in the church in Corinth, they were all speaking in tongues all the time and they thought they were so spiritual. And Paul goes, is anybody else being helped by this? And the answer clearly is, no. So interpret at least, so they can get in on it. And he says, actually, when I'm with you, I'd rather have one word of prophecy than a thousand words of tongues. Because when I'm with you, I want to help you. So when we worship, the first question is not, am I enjoying this? The first question is, who's with me here? How can I be part of anything that God might be doing in their life? There's a skill to that. We've not got time to talk about it, but there's a skill. Secondly, how can you help? Thirdly, what's God getting your attention about? I think when we come into space like this, God wants to get our attention. He wants to speak. What's he saying? And the fourth question is very simple. How will you obedient will you be tomorrow? How do we bring our worship into a place where we're seeking God and we are living? And do you know what? It'll get worse as a temptation the better these guys get. I was thinking this morning when I was listening to them singing three-part harmony, I was thinking... What they need is a fourth person, me. <laughs> I was thinking back. I was thinking, this, this did go through my mind. <laughs> this did go through my mind. I remember the days when I was trying to lead worship, singing like a very loud frog. With, no, I was. With Frank and with Maggie. Three which, frogs together. Three frogs together. <laughs> three, three frogs together. Very loud singing. And do you know what? There were moments where God really blessed us. But do you know, nobody could ever doubt, wow, this is brilliant. <laughs> nobody ever said that about any of that <laughs> moment. It's as harsh, but it's true. But you listen to them sing and you listen to them play and you go, wow. And I want that to continue. 
And we are blessed because it's, it's, it is. But you know what? The temptation is we come and we go, so what are they going to do this week? They did three-part harmony last week. Whew, what are they going to do next week? Do it again. Make us feel good again. And in fact, it becomes worse, doesn't it? It becomes, take us a bit higher. And we come back and we go, we're the people of God. We want to worship together, but we want our worship to be connected to, with tomorrow. I don't want to worship like a clanging cymbal. I want to worship with love. And only the Lord knows how difficult I find that some days. But my honesty in worship comes and says, God, I want it to be true. My honesty in worship says, God, I've got a lot I need to say sorry for. My honesty in worship says, God, can you renew me? My honesty in worship says, can you do it again in me? I don't want Amos to come to church and denounce us. I want us to hear God saying, seek me.